This is More in the Morning on News Talk 1010 Toronto. Okay, listen, it's 6.51. I don't want to delay because I always enjoy our conversations with Dan Riskin, our science expert who joins us on Thursdays for Test Tube Thursday. Good morning, sir. Good morning. All right, so tell me about baby talk. Yeah, this is a great study. This is great. Uh, we, you know, we, we have a baby. You don't know what you're doing. It's, it's like you're, you're driving blind. I've, I've got three kids and every time you're like, oh, what do I do with this thing? So it's intuitive that you should communicate with it and you're talking to it and it just looks at you or doesn't. And you're wondering if it actually has any impact. And this study shows that that talking that we do with babies really makes a difference and it's really good for them and it affects the way their brains develop. And so the way they did this is they took 163 babies and toddlers and these these little kids wore these devices sort of in their pocket that recorded sound for 16 hours a day for three days just to quantify how much these different kids were hearing talking how much interaction they were having with their parents with caregivers how much they were talking when they were a little bit older um these these kids range from about you know from babies right up to about two and a half years old and uh what they did is after they finished that and they got their data on how much language was happening for these kids they scanned the kids brain so the kids had a little nap. Um, and I, I do mean literally a nap. I mean, when it's an animal, you sort of talk about, you know, putting the kid down from putting them in the scanner and all this stuff. No, these kids are just seriously having a nap. And while they were having a nap, they were placed very gently in a brain scanner and the scanner scanned their brains and quantified how much myelin they had on their neurons. And myelin is kind of like this, this fatty insulation that goes around the neuron that helps transmit signals faster. And it's something that, uh, that is associated with using the neurons better and them firing faster and sending signals more quickly. And what they found is the kids that heard more language have more of this myelin on their neurons. And so you can see it in the two and a half year olds that when they're hearing more language, their brains on a cellular level look different. And so it really makes a difference for these kids. And so what the researchers are saying is like, you you should be talking to your babies as much as possible and not just talking in front of them. So they hear people having a conversation, talking to them, even though they can't respond yet, you know, t- showing them what you're doing, having words with them. And then if they respond in any way, talking back to them and, and, uh, and just having that back and forth with them to interact. And that's how helping their brains develop the language and all those skills that are going to help them so much in their lives. It's interesting because, you know, I'm reminded of another study, which was about why we engage in baby talk. And the reason is actually that babies hear higher frequencies so if you speak in a sing-song higher voice, they respond better. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I had a great conversation um, with, uh, I believe her name was Dr. Madigan at, at the University of Calgary, but she was a, a de- she worked with children's development. And uh, she said something, she said interacting with a, a baby is like playing tennis, where you, you say something to them and they might just look at you, but you take that and then it changes the way you look back at them. And it might not be that they're having a conversation with you, but you're sending something to them and then they give you, like they might hold up something that they're looking at and you say, oh, what are you holding there? And you, you just have that interaction back and forth and they're learning whatever's happening in that little cute brain of theirs uh that's it's those interactions that make such a difference i mean language is supposed to be sort of what sets us apart from all the animals and supposed to be so important for us and so giving a kid a boost in that way is just it's it's neat to see it on a cellular level because you know it intuitively but it's cool to see that all that talking actually pays off okay so uh, the song says venice is sinking but apparently new york is also sinking 
Yeah, and the, the or New, New Orleans is sinking is another good story. But uh, maybe somebody's going to write New York is is sinking because a new study shows that uh, New York is sinking at a rate of one to two millimeters per year, and they think it's because those skyscrapers are so heavy. So for this study, they they did a calculation of how much they think all those buildings weigh. There's more than a million buildings in New York City, which is a lot of buildings. Mind you, it's a big city, uh, but a million buildings that's so many and they worked out that it's uh, 1.68 trillion pounds for that and that's just the buildings that's not the roads or the sidewalks or the bridges or the railways or any of that stuff um and they think that that's responsible for for the fact that it's just very slowly sinking and you know like one you know it one to two millimeters per year probably not the end of the world but it fits into the context of sort of how things are changing with climate change and not just that sea level is getting higher but also that there are more and more hurricanes happening and you know new york saw sandy in 2012 and saw ida in 2021 and so um this is just one other piece of data that reminds us that our cities on the coastlines are vulnerable. And, and a lot of these cities, not New York, but other cities, especially Jakarta, which is the capital of Indonesia, um, they're extracting so much groundwater that they're sinking much faster than this. So it's just something to have uh, on our radar. It's, it's not just pretty songs by the Tragically Hip. And, and who sang Venice is Sinking? That's... Um, oh, I'm uh, trying to remember. Joker's yeah. Jano, do you remember who sang Venice is Sinking? All right, we'll keep moving, and you figure that one out, and we'll get yeah, to it before we go to the news to at seven. Corner, yeah, Spirit exactly. of the West. Spirit of the West. Spirit of the West. Okay. That's it. That's it. Good Canadian band. So um, anyway, uh, maybe somebody will write the song about New York next. Uh, well, no, apparently there is a song about New York sinking, Joe. I'll oh, really? Sink Manhattan by They Might Be Giants. Okay. Okay. Wow. Leave it to They Might Be Giants to have some science content. They're always good for that. <laughs> James Webb Space Telescope has discovered water around a mysterious comet. What does this mean? Yeah, you know what? When I saw the headline, I was like, wait a second. We already know that comets have water in them. Why is this mysterious at all? But once I did some reading, it all started to make sense. We have always thought that comets come from way out in like the Kuiper belt, which is the asteroid belt out past Pluto, that Pluto's almost part of, or way out past that, there's something called the Oort cloud. And that's where another place where comets come from. We don't think of comets coming from the asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter. But it turns out that there are a few. And in the last couple of years, they've found a couple of comets that really do come from that closer belt of asteroids. And they're not asteroids. They're, they're made up of different things. Asteroids are rocks. These things are mostly ice and water. Um, but this is the first sort of good scan of, uh, a comet from the asteroid belt instead of one of the ones that comes from far away. And that scan had something that they expected and something they didn't expect. The water was expected. They thought there was going to be water there. And lo and behold, when they did the scan and they looked at the spectra of, of the wavelengths of light, they were like, yep, there's very clearly water around this comet. So that looks the way it's supposed to look. But the mystery is that there isn't carbon dioxide. And usually a comet has a mix of water and carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide tends to burn off as it comes close to the sun. Um, um, but uh, but this one doesn't have any carbon dioxide. So did it have some and it burnt off because it's sitting in the asteroid belt, which is relatively close to the sun compared to what normal comets experience? And so it all got burned off. Or is there something about the comets in the asteroid belt that makes them form without carbon dioxide? So what's what's the story for that? So uh, a bit of a mystery, which is always fun in science, but um, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's another accomplishment by this James Webb Space Telescope. And like, like we were talking about before this thing launched, before it got set up, we don't know what kinds of weird mysteries are going to be unraveled or created by this thing, but this is a good example of something that I, I had no idea they were even going to check for this, and here it is. Okay, and finally we get to adventure movies and the idea of bringing back extinct animals. 
Yeah, this is an article in Gizmodo that's just sort of trying to put things in 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 uh, perspective. So we talk about de-extincting uh, mammoths and and uh, other animals, dodo birds and things like that, and bringing them back. And the the argument that's being made in this article, which I think is valid, is that we're not really reaching back into the past and plucking the animal out and putting it back into today's world and putting it and re put, setting things off the way we left them. Um, if we clone an animal using modern technologies, we're taking the DNA of a extinct animal, but we need to mix it with a living animal, uh, a relative of that group in order to make it happen. So you might take mammoth DNA and put it into the egg of a of, uh, an elephant and then grow up that inside an, an elephant's body and then it gives birth and it's going to have a little bit of DNA of elephant. So it's not truly going to be an extinct animal. So we shouldn't talk, they argue, we shouldn't call it de-extinction. We should call it something else like creating, you know, hybrids or something like that. Um, I think we're f- splitting hairs over language. Mm-hmm. I think that technology is still pretty powerful and pretty amazing. And Jurassic Park was a great movie, and I hope it stays fiction. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Looking for my velociraptors. That is Dan Riskin, our science expert, and that is our feature test tube Thursdays, which not surprisingly happens every Thursday at 650.